Thank you. Good morning. I do want to thank Pastor Freer for the opportunity to, to be here and to open God's Word with you this morning. I was going to mention a number of things about the camp, but he really just did a perfect job of describing what it is, uh, the benefits of Christian camping. But I wonder, have any of you ever had the opportunity to be up at Tri-State Bible Camp? All right, so a few of you have been up that direction. We're just about 25 uh, minutes away from you, but we're... We're thankful for uh, the property that God has given us there right on the banks of the Delaware River. Uh, we have 86 acres of, of property there uh, by which uh, we're able to run Christian camps and retreats throughout the course of the year. And thankful to have my family here with me. They're not always able to, to travel with me when I do, but it's, it's good to have them here. Uh, we do have six children uh, from 20 on down to eight. And uh, we're thankful for them. Uh, big families run in my wife's family. Uh, she was the oldest of 10. Uh, I was the youngest of three. So uh, large families, and my sisters were much older than I was, so they weren't exactly, uh, I wasn't used to that many children. She was, so thankfully she's, uh, she's able to uh, manage all those things. But uh, certainly uh, we're thankful for our children and and for their part in the ministry and helping there at the camp as well. Uh, but uh, our mission there at Tri-State, we exist to serve churches, families, and individuals through the benefits of a camp environment by lovingly reaching campers' hearts with the truths of God's Word to encourage continued personal and spiritual growth for the glory of God. And so as a camp ministry, we are really devoted to serving the local church, serving Churches like this one uh, and many others, uh, there are churches that come to us from probably about a five-hour radius uh, over in New York City, out in the western Pennsylvania, down into Maryland, and up into New England. And uh, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to minister to about 125 different churches throughout the course of the year. Uh, we run 30 events uh, all throughout the year, not just summer camp. And uh, sometimes we think of camp and we think, oh, it's for young people and it's just in the summertime. But that's not the case. And uh, we would love to have the opportunity to do many of the things that uh, Pastor Fur already mentioned here this morning. Just give you an opportunity to kind of step away from the cares and concerns of our day-to-day -day routine and uh, to be able to just sit and focus and concentrate and be saturated with the Word of God while you're there at camp. And so... We're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to do that. The camp has been there uh, for 72 years, and uh, so we're grateful for the many years of ministry that God has given uh, us there to minister. My family's been there for the last 18 years, serving as the director uh, there at the camp. And we're grateful for all that God has done and continues to do. Uh, we just had a number of winter retreats that we just finished up here for teens and juniors. Uh, just last weekend, we had a sweethearts getaway for uh, couples that were there. Uh, there are a number of things coming up uh, this spring and summer that we would love uh, for you to uh, take advantage of if uh, you felt that it would be a help to you. In March, we have a church leadership conference uh, with a, a couple of uh, pastors that are coming in and speaking on just uh, what is the state of the church in our nation as a whole right now, and then what's the state of our local church, and how does that fit into the picture of things? And so on March 20 and 21, uh, which is a Monday and Tuesday, we'll be having that retreat. We have a couple of ladies' retreats in the month of April, uh, April 14th and 15th, and 20, uh, 21 and 22. We have a men's retreat on May 5th and 6th. And then we're into our summer camps there in June. For summer camp, we have uh, junior camps, which are for 3rd to 6th graders. Uh, we have teen camps for 7th to 12th graders. And then we also have family camps as well. So I did bring some brochures and things with me. If any of those things sound of interest to you, uh, I'll have those up here on the front table after the service. You can feel free to pick one of those up or uh, let us know about some of that information. But thankful for the opportunity to be here. We're going to be looking at the book of uh, Romans, Romans chapter 12 here this morning. And I want to talk to you this morning about the fruit of a transformed life. The fruit of a transformed life. We'll read just the first two verses here as we get started and then we'll have a word of prayer. And uh, then we'll kind of jump into uh, much of this chapter here this morning. 
So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll look at the text here. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together here this morning to worship you and sing praises to your name. We're grateful for this time of the week where we can just sit and study your word together and learn from it and grow from it. I pray, Lord, that your word would impact us here today. That we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us guide my thoughts, maybe filled with your Holy Spirit as I preach your word here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would just use all of the aspects of this worship service here this morning to your honor and to your glory. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray this. Amen. Have you ever tried to uh, build something without adequate instructions? Uh, over the years, I've done some light construction projects on my home. and uh, We used to live in Maryland. I was a youth pastor in Maryland for a number of years before we moved up to the camp. And we lived in Maryland. I'd finished off our basement there in that house. And I finished off uh, an attic and a porch uh, where I live now there at the camp. And I'm certainly not great at it. In fact, I probably know just enough to be dangerous uh, as I go throughout. But, uh, you know, I've read some things and, you know, I've watched enough of the This Old House episodes and things. You know, you can learn everything from those guys, you know, and, uh, and kind of figured some of those things out and accomplished some things along the way. And, and uh, I'm not saying that I didn't mess up along the way. It wasn't difficult, but I've managed to at least accomplish some things. However, have you bought like an electronic or something that needs to be assembled these days? And have you seen what they give you for instructions with some of those items that you buy? As I get older, my eyes seem to get worse. You're going to see me taking my glasses on and off here this morning. But uh, my eyes seem to be getting worse. And again, it's not bad enough for me to break down and get bifocals or progressive lenses like the eye doctor tells me to. But it's bad enough that, you know, when I'm trying to read some of those instructions uh, or small print, I need to turn on like every light in the house. All right. Can anybody relate to that? You know, uh, you ever find yourself having to turn on the flashlight on your phone to, you know, like try to examine something? Thing or try to read something, and and uh, with the small print that comes on some of these instructions these days, you know, or if you don't have your phone handy, you know, you try to hold it at like the exact angle where it's going to catch the light just right, you know, so uh, you can hopefully make out the writing that's on those things. It may just be me, but it seems that as my eyes get worse, the instruction sheets get smaller, and. Uh, and, uh, you know, not only is the paper that they write these things on smaller these days, but uh, they also seem to squeeze the instructions in like 10 different languages onto those small sheets of paper and makes it even harder to read. It's so bad, you know, sometimes I, I'm straining trying to read something only to find out that when I actually focus in on a word that like I'm on the Chinese version of it or something, you know, I, I haven't even got to the right English uh, translation of it. All I want to know is how to put something together and how to make it work properly. So if you're anything like me, you end up getting tired of, of standing there like a flamingo, you know, like on one leg with your neck craned in a weird direction, you know, trying to hold the, the instructions at the right angle to catch the sunlight and all those kinds of things. And, and you get uh, fed up with that and you just decide that you're going to try to figure it out for yourself. You know what happens for me when I normally try to do that? I mean, sometimes I get lucky and I do figure it out. But most of the time, I end up either aggravated that the manufacturer didn't make it the way that 
makes sense to me. You know, it doesn't matter whether it makes sense to anybody else, but as long as it made sense to me, that would be good. And I end up having trouble assembling it. Or I end up living frustrated with something that works enough, but it doesn't work completely. It doesn't work properly because I didn't care enough to read the instructions to make it work correctly. To this day, I have a clock in the the camp chapel that doesn't work the way that it should. I have no idea how to program it because the instructions were so bad. I have one of my sons comes over. He knows how to do it. I don't even ask any questions. He just takes care of it. But I don't know how to program that thing. My children for, uh, for Christmas just bought me a weather station. I did say a weather station because I'm getting old and uh, old people like to know what the weather is. And uh, we don't trust the app on our phone to be accurate, right? So uh, I don't know how to fully use it yet because, again, I, I haven't taken the time to, to read the instructions. It shows me the temperature and I think it's giving me some weather information, but it's not completely accurate because I haven't figured out how to get the sensor in the correct location outside and, and to get everything connected with that because I haven't read the instructions for it. Maybe, maybe you're not like that at all. But we can probably all agree this morning that that's a foolish way to go about things, isn't it? To have something and to not use it to its fullest. To not use it the way that it was intended. Well, as we come to the book of Romans here this morning, chapter 12... It's important for us to understand that chapter 12 begins really the the nuts and bolts portion of the book. The first 11 chapters are are rich doctrinal chapters that explain our standing with Christ and, and what we have in Christ. But in chapter 12, the tone changes and we get into the practice of what the Christian life looks like. Really, Paul concluded several of his books in that way. And depending on how we would break up this chapter here this morning, there are about 20 different exhortations in this chapter that are given to us to help us navigate our conduct within relationships. Whether those are relationships within the church, uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ, whether that's relationships that we have just to, to people in general, or even with people that we consider enemies. Now, you can take a, a, a deep breath here. We're not going to look at all 20 of them here this morning. We don't have the time to do that. But we are going to look at a few of them here this morning and find out how this fits into our Christian walk. So notice with me, if you will, let's look at verse 3 together. It says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of of faith. So we find out kind of one of these first exhortations given to us says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Pride. Pride, right? Pride's one of those subtle things that affects all of us. How do I know that it affects all of us? Well, Paul says there that uh, I'm saying this to everyone among you, Right? Paul says, look, all of us need to hear this. We need to be humble. Humility is something that can be evasive for us. Even though it's vital to our Christian walk. Pride is mentioned often throughout Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 17, we're told that there's six things the Lord hates. One of those things is a proud look. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5 says that everyone that is proud in his heart is an abomination to the Lord. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 tells us to be clothed with humility because once again God resists the proud And gives grace to the humble. Pride is such a subtle thing that can creep into our lives. But yet it's a destructive 
force that causes God to resist us. Literally to oppose us. To stand against us. I don't think there's any, anyone in here this morning that would say, hey, I want to live in opposition to God. Yet we allow the sin of pride to creep into our lives sometimes, which puts us in opposition to God. And whether it's because of the talents that we have, or maybe the experience that we have, or maybe the material goods that we have, or the things that we've accomplished in our lives, we allow ourselves to think more highly of ourselves than we should be. Pride really can take on two different forms. We can be boastful and arrogant as we would normally think of pride. Or we can really be self-deprecating so that others will talk about how wonderful we are. But both of those forms in different ways are from pride. They're both harmful to our spiritual walk and to the church. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, and we would step back and we would evaluate, we would ask ourselves the question, what do I have to offer God that allows me to be proud? That allows me to be arrogant? All that I have, every talent that I have, All of my material gain, all of my accomplishments are because of the grace of God. The reality is that if other people knew us the way that God knows us, there would be a lot for us to be humbled about. Many years ago at camp, uh, during the summertime, we take rafting trips down the Delaware River and during a family camp one time, we were taking a, a trip down the river, and one dad was having some fun with his children there on that trip, and he stood up in the front of the raft, and he stood up real tall, and he had the paddle in his hands, and he held it up over his head, and he said, I am the king of this raft. And just as the words left his lips, the bottom of the raft ripped out, and he just plunged right down into the river. And we laughed about that afterwards, and, and it was a humorous thing as, uh, as that had happened. But you know, sometimes that's our attitude, isn't it? I'm the king of this life. I am the king of this situation. But you know, it may not take too much for us to be humbled real quick to realize we better not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And several times there in verse 3, Paul uses a Greek word that's translated think here in the King James. And it has the idea of overvaluing ourselves, being vain. But instead he tells us to think soberly or, or moderately or, or can even be translated sanely. And stop thinking that we're more important than we are. Failing to recognize humility in our life can cause many believers and has caused many believers to falter. Paul says, be humble. Let's skip down a few verses to verse 9 where it says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. The word dissimulation there can be translated sincere or genuine. The mark of a Christian should be a love that is sincere. A love that is genuine. There's a lot of hypocrites today, aren't there? People who talk one way around certain people and act another way in different situations or behind people's backs. But as believers, that should not be the case with us. True love, self-sacrificing love, genuine love should be the mark of every Christian. That should be what we are known for. 
In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, a question is asked to, to Christ, What is the greatest commandment in the law? And he responds and says that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two hang all the law. Love God and love others. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, we're told that the greatest gift we can possess is love. In Galatians chapter 5, we're uh, told about the fruit of the Spirit. And in verse 22, the very first fruit is love. I wonder, is our life marked by genuine love for others? The verse goes on to say, abhor or hate that which is evil and cleave or cling to that which is good. I found it kind of interesting that hate would come right on the heels of love there, but I really think that their juxtaposition is is something to take note of. Why? Because true love hates what is evil. True, genuine love will cling to what is good. That's certainly a far cry from what society is screaming at us today, isn't it? John MacArthur in his commentary on the book of Romans says, Evil is the enemy of God and the enemy of love. And it is to be as fervently abhorred as love is to be fervently coveted. I wonder, do we hate evil? When was the last time we got upset over sin? Now, we're not going to live perfect lives. But when we sin, does our spirit let us know that there is a problem going on that needs to be resolved? Does that grieve us as it grieves God? Do we recognize that there is something that needs to change? You know, this day in which we live, much more than I remember as I was growing up, but we're constantly being bombarded with evil, aren't we? With sinful things. Whether through social media, or whether through television, or movies, or video games, or books, or magazines, it's, it's all around us. The reality is, I've had to have conversations with my children about things that my parents never dreamed about needing to talk to me about. Why? Because of everything that is being thrown at us today. And so we end up with a steady diet of violence and of perversion. And after a while, we don't seem to be shocked by it anymore. Now don't get me wrong, I believe most Christians truly want to do what's right. And think that we should be clinging to good, but we have become so comfortable with the world... That sin no longer shocks us. Paul tells us that sincere love abhors evil and clings to good. Let's look at one more here this morning before we get to the verses that I really want to get to here this morning. Verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. He says to bless others who persecute you. Society would say, if someone offends or harms you, retaliate. Do harm to them. Get even. Paul says, bless them. In fact, a few verses down in verse 17, he says, don't repay evil for evil to any man. The word blessed there has the idea of speaking well of that person. You know, that needs to be our continual actions toward everyone, but even those who treat us badly. 
Whether we consciously do this or not, often our temptation is to be negative toward others that we don't see eye to eye with. Maybe we antagonize those that differ from us. Maybe we ignore others that we don't like to be around. Or we take opportunities to speak poorly of those who have spoken poorly of us. Or maybe we avoid contact altogether with people that we disagree with. You don't have to raise your hand this morning, but have you ever gone out of your way to not talk to someone because of problems that you have with someone? Now, I'm not saying that there may not be hurtful scars from the past and from things that people have done to us. And I'm certainly not talking about someone who may have sinned against you in an illegal way. Those are things that need to be dealt with properly. You know, there are many Christians walking around with underlying problems and with hostility and with anger and with bitterness toward other people because of fairly insignificant issues or disagreements. And perhaps those things have happened a while in the past, but they just can't get over it. Can you remember when my youngest daughter, when she was about two years old, my son had accidentally poked her in the eye when they were fooling around. And so for about six months, she held a grudge. I mean, she held a grudge. Anytime he would go to give her a hug or, or anything, she would let out this little, this little growl. And she had this cute little scowl on her face when she would do it. And I mean, he just couldn't get close to her. She held that grudge for a long time. And you know, it was humorous. It was funny. It was cute because she was too. You know, there are many Christians who are older than two. But the growl and the scowl that you let out every time you're around a certain person is unbecoming of a Christian. Paul says, bless those that persecute you. Now, of the 20 or so listed in this chapter, that's three of them here this morning. We're also told to be kindly affectioned to one another. To prefer others. To be diligent and not slothful. To be full of enthusiasm serving the Lord. To rejoice in hope. To be patient in tribulation. To be devoted to prayer. To meet the needs of other believers. To show joy for those who are experiencing blessings. To show empathy for those who are struggling. To not be partial. To be around the humble and lowly. To not be a self-promoter. To live in peace with everyone. And as we think over that comprehensive, well, not, it's not even comprehensive, but as we think over that long list, and if we're honest with ourselves, there are probably times when we fall short in some of those areas. And perhaps then we get aggravated and frustrated with the Christian life because we're not seeing the growth that we want to see. Because it doesn't seem like maybe God is using us like we had hoped. Because there doesn't seem to be any progress in my spiritual walk. And so we live with a Christian life that is half-functioning and seriously frustrating because it's not working like we had thought. Thankfully, God didn't leave us without the instructions, right? So let's go back up to the beginning of this chapter and let's look at the first two verses that we read together here this morning and find out God's plan for us. So beginning in verse 1 there, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, or I appeal to you, brothers. The Greek word translated beseech there is the word parakaleo. It's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Most of those times it's used by those who are in extreme and dire circumstances. People who had handicaps or, or sickness or who had great needs. 
Here in Romans chapter 12, it's used to urge us to do something. Paul says, I am urging you to do what? He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The word therefore is referring back to something that we've just read. Certainly it's referring back to the previous several verses from the end of chapter 11. But I believe in reality it's referring back to the previous 11 chapters. Where I think a number of the mercies of God have already been laid out. Have you ever just stopped to think... Uh, when it wasn't Thanksgiving Day, you know, just stop to think, what are some of the mercies of God in my life? How has God's grace been demonstrated to me? Well, the first three chapters of the book of Romans were introduced to justification by faith. That although we were sinners, condemned, helpless, could do nothing for ourselves. God sent His Son to die for our sins. And if we by faith believe in Christ alone for salvation, God declares us to be righteous. What a wonderful doctrine that is. That God would love us and care about us enough that He would send His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, lived a perfect life, was nailed to a cross, took our sins upon Himself, and made atonement for our sin. So that all who repent of their sin and by faith believe in Christ alone for salvation, God declares them to be righteous, to be accepted, because of faith alone In Jesus Christ alone. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We who were under condemnation are now declared righteous. Certainly there's no greater example of the mercy of God than that. But it it doesn't end there. Because not only that, but chapter 6 shows us that we're now identified with Christ. We're informed that we no longer are slaves to sin and that we are now the servants of righteousness. We're also told in that chapter that we now share in His eternal life. What a blessing that is. Chapter 7 and 8 describe the struggles that we face because of our flesh fighting against our spirit. But we're told that we have victory in Christ. We're told that we're made part of God's family and and as such we're no longer bound and subject to the flesh because we have been adopted into the family of God. And not only are we in His family, but we are joint heirs with Christ. We have the standing of Christ before our Heavenly Father. Chapter 8 goes on to tell us that we've been predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. And we're promised assurance of all these mercies because as Romans 8, 38 and 39 describes for us, no one is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And that's just a sampling of the mercies of God. The truth be told, we could spend all morning talking about the mercies of God and we wouldn't even come close to exhausting the list. Every time we think about God's mercy, it should cause us to stand in awe. How can I ever get over what God has done for me? But we're being urged by the mercies of God to do what? It says to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. We would often think of this as surrendering our lives to God. Living a life that is completely yielded to Him and led by the Spirit. How many of you are parents in here this morning? How many of you still have young children? Alright, a few of you. Uh, You ever had to beg your children to do something for you? I can remember begging some of our kids to stay in their beds. 
we had some early risers in, in our home, and uh, they would be up before the crack of dawn. And uh, I can remember come, them coming in our room, and it's like, oh, please, just go back to bed. Just need a little bit more sleep, right? And, and uh, we would beg with them to, to do that. You ever had to, to beg your children to eat something that they didn't want to eat? You know, maybe their vegetables or, or whatever the case is. You ever, you ever play the airplane game with them? You know, you know like trying to, trying to convince them to open their mouths and, and to eat whatever it, it was. And, you know, as my kids have gotten older, I don't have to beg them to eat anymore. In fact, I probably should beg them to stop eating because of so, how much food some of them eat in our homes now. But... But over the years, I've had to beg my children to do things. But, you know, I can't imagine ever having to beg or plead with my children if I ever had a real need in my life. I'm thankful for the right relationship that we have with our kids and for their love and for their care for me and that they desire to help me. And I can't imagine ever having to, to beg or plead with them to help me with a need in my life. But you know, if that's the case at a human level, why is it that when Christ comes to us and asks us to surrender our will to Him, why are we being pled with to do that? And I think, unfortunately, it's because many times we're just unwilling. There's too many times as Christians we're going through the motions of religion without experiencing a real relationship with our Heavenly Father. A relationship that touches every aspect of our lives and impacts the way that we live. I wonder, do we live each day completely yielded to God? Not are you in church on Sunday, but then the rest of the week you kind of put God on a shelf and kind of live however you desire. Not, not do you get emotional when you hear about a need or a challenge from God's word, and then you kind of let your emotions dictate your life instead of a yielded and surrendered life to God. Not even, you know what, I, I muster up the strength to read my Bible every day and to defeat sin, but your victories are really not spiritual. It's just that you have strong willpower. Because the only way to live a spiritual life is to live a spirit-filled life. To live each and every day where we take our hands off our lives and we yield ourselves to God and allow the Holy Spirit to direct us. John Phillips in his commentary says, For me to be spiritual, the Holy Spirit must have complete control of me. The verse there goes on to say in verse 1, that our bodies are to be presented holy and acceptable. We all know that God wants us to live a holy life, but it's not always an easy thing, is it? It's not always easy to make the right decisions and, and to do the right thing. My flesh still wants to control me. That's why it's so important that daily I am yielding myself to God. Because we're never going to live holy on accidents. We're not going to wake up one day and say, I think I've done it, right? You know, I, I think I, I lived holy yesterday. It's not. We're faced with choices each and every day, all throughout the day. We're making choices on whether to please God or to please ourselves. And we can live a life that is obedient to His Word. We can live a life that is willing to deny the flesh and to obey the Spirit. But those things come from a life that has been presented as a sacrifice to God. A life that is yielded to Him. That's really at the heart of what we desire to do at Tri-State Bible Camp. Our camp motto is reaching hearts, encouraging growth. Why reaching hearts? Because the heart is the decision maker in all that we do in life. And so we want to take the time to meet campers where they are and to encourage them to live a life that is yielded to God so that they can take those steps of growth spiritually. 
Because the reality is this. Living a yielded life to God is the most strategic and practical thing we could ever do in our lives. Trying to live things in our own control, we're always going to mess it up. Living a life that is yielded to Him is the most strategic decision we could ever make. But yet so often we ignore the instructions. And so we live a half-functioning spiritual life that's not as God intended. The verse goes on to say that this is our reasonable service. Our motivation in presenting our bodies to God is not to gain favor and acceptance with Him. We've already been accepted through the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. Our motivation is not to attain eternal life because chapter 6 told us that we already share that with Him. Our motivation is not to keep what we have from Him because chapter 8 told us that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So what's our motivation? Our motivation is only a heart of gratitude out of what God has given to us, the mercies of God. Our motivation is one of love and gratefulness. Verse 2 then goes on and says, And be not conformed to this world. What's the world that this verse is talking about? It's really talking about the age in which we live. A set of values, a belief system. Kind of the overall condition of mankind. Is there a belief system that is in place that's at war with the belief system set forth in God's Word? Is it? Absolutely there is, right? Just turn on the television. Look at a billboard. uh, Turn on the radio. Read a magazine. I mean, really, just go to Walmart and listen to people talk, right? I mean, we understand that the world is at odds with the Spirit of God. They're polar opposites. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. They don't get it. They don't understand that. And so as a result, they don't understand us either. They don't understand why you would serve God and, and subject yourselves to His will. They don't understand why you would act out of obedience to His Word. That doesn't make sense to them. It's foolishness to them. So you know what they want to do? They want to make you conform. The word conform means to fashion alike or to follow the same pattern. Have in uh, my hands here, you might not be able to see them real well, but I have two pennies here in my hand this morning. One of them looks like a normal penny. Uh, I could walk in any store and I could spend it. I wouldn't get much for it these days, but I could go into a store. It's actual currency. I could spend that penny wherever I want to go. The other one has gone through one of those penny presses. Any of you familiar with those penny presses that are kind of like at amusement places and those kinds of things? And, and uh, you know, one of those novelty things. And, and you turn the crank and it imprints a logo or a pattern on it. This one happens to be for the Reading Phillies. Go Phillies. All right. And uh, both of them are technically pennies, right? Both of them are technically pennies. But only one of them is usable in its current form. The other one has been marred by thousands of pounds of pressure to conform it and to mold it into something that is no longer currency. That's what verse 2 is telling us. Don't allow the world to conform you. To shape you, to mar you, to disfigure you, to render you useless as God intended. But it goes on to say, but be transformed. The word transformed here is the word metamorpho. It's actually the exact opposite of being conformed. Being conformed means we're allowing outward pressure to force us into a mold that does not reflect our true nature. Whereas being transformed means we are allowing our true nature to work its way out. God wants to change us. So again, we see the battle that we face each and every day, right? 
The Spirit of God who regenerated us and who gave us a new nature is convicting us and is prodding us to be transformed by allowing Christ to be seen through our lives. And the world is constantly pressuring us to conform to their value system. So how does this transformation take place? Well, it tells us it happens by the renewing of our minds. The word renewing there literally means renovation. The house that I live in at the camp, as I already mentioned, has undergone some renovations in the 18 years we've lived there. We moved in. It was a two-bedroom house. We had two boys and a girl, all under the age of four at the time. It was okay. But then as our children started to grow and our family size started to grow and things needed to change. And so I took an attic and turned it into a room and I took a porch and turned it into a bedroom for our boys. And each time that we needed to renovate, we would go through the process of tearing down the existing walls and knocking out knee walls in the attic and taking out insulation. Why? Because I wanted to get a clean slate to work with. So I could start building it back up. That's what needs to take place with our minds. Until the point of salvation, our minds have been going along with the world system. They were, they were darkened. But at the point of conversion, our minds need to be gutted and need to be renewed with truth. And it's only as our minds are saturated with truth that they will be reprogrammed. If we continue to let the evil of the world mold and shape our thinking more than we allow the Word of God to transform us, we're always going to be frustrated. We're always going to be struggling. It's only as we spend time in God's Word that our minds will begin to think biblically instead of worldly. And that's why the verse finishes by saying that ye may prove or approve or discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is God's plan and desire for us as believers. And living a life that is spiritually half-functioning and frustrating is not what God intends for you. Just like having a weather station in my home and a clock in our chapel that I don't fully know how to use isn't what the manufacturer intended for them. The spiritual life doesn't have to be mystical. It doesn't have to be elusive. It is simply and practically living in conscious obedience to God's word and living a life that is yielded to his spirits. Then, as we approach the rest of this chapter, as we kind of looked at in the beginning, how do I live humbly instead of arrogantly? Live yielded to the Spirit of God. How do I love sincerely instead of hypocritically? I need to live yielded to the Spirit of God. How do I abhor evil and cling to that which is good? I need to live yielded to the Spirit of God. How do I bless someone who has hurt me? I need to live yielded to the Spirit of God. How do I live out the rest of the exhortations in Romans chapter 12? I need to live yielded to the Spirit of God. How do I stop living in frustration and aggravation? And how do I have love and peace and joy in my heart? I need to live yielded to the Spirit of God. We'll be transformed when we allow the Spirit of God to have control of our lives each and every moment of the day. And that's when we will see the fruit of a transformed life. As we live how God intended, it will be an exciting and fulfilling place to be. But we have to follow the instructions. God didn't create us to bear some fruit. God wants us to bear much fruit for His honor and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that You haven't left us stranded without the instructions. 
And just as foolish as it is in my life and perhaps others at times when we fail to read the instructions for electronics or things that need to be assembled and we end up frustrated and and living with something that doesn't fully get used, I fear there's many Christians today that are living that same way spiritually. We're saved. We're grateful to have your mercy and grace in our life. We're grateful to have that eternal hope of heaven. But then we kind of go through the rest of our life with a half-functioning spiritual life. And it can be frustrating. And it can be aggravating. And no doubt it causes some people to leave church and and to abandon uh, the things that they uh, have learned and, and all of these types of things, Lord. But really it comes back to the fact that we just haven't followed the instructions that you've given to us. We'll never in our own strength be able to keep a, a list of do's and don'ts or, or to, to, to live our lives the way that would be pleasing to you. But when we live a life that is yielded to you, a life where you have complete control of our lives each and every moment of the day, well, that's the most strategic decision we could ever make in our lives. That's the most satisfying and fulfilling that our Christian life could ever be is when you're in control. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a desire to live that way. Where we take our hands off of our lives and allow you to take control. Help us, Father, because we know it's not easy. But may it be our heart's desire. May it be something that we strive and yearn for. May it be something that we pray and ask for your help in. So that we can see the fruit of a transformed life. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name that you pray this.